are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George with us from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the New Testament letters. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 4, which include the following two topics. God showed his justice in the past by withholding his hand, and second, Abraham's faith was credited to him as justice. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George speaking about God showed His justice in the past by withholding His hand. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. God has been speaking about his saving justice from the beginning of salvation history. In fact, we could say from the beginning of time itself. In salvation history, God has been speaking of his salvation and of the justice that man must fulfill in attaining to that salvation. But everything has been a preparation for the person of Jesus Christ. Everything under the Old Covenant, in other words, has prepared for, pointed to, the person of Christ and therefore is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So, as we look at the beginning of the text for our present lesson, we find St. Paul saying that God's saving justice was witnessed by the law and the prophets but now it has been revealed altogether apart from the law. God's saving justice given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. If we look at the Old Testament then, whether we consider the key figures of the Old Testament, God's saving interventions on behalf of Israel under the Old Testament, the signs, the promise, the covenants, everything in the Old Testament, in some way or form, speaks about saving justice and points to the saving justice that God has in mind in sending his Son. St. Paul goes on a few verses later to say something very interesting. He speaks of how God appointed Christ, his Son, as a sacrifice for reconciliation through faith by the shedding of his blood, and so showed his justness. He then says, First, for the past, when sins went unpunished, because he held his hand. This is very interesting language. 
What Scripture is telling us, essentially, is that under the Old Testament, God was revealing His saving justice by doing what? By holding His hand. It's interesting how so frequently people think of the God of the Old Testament as a God of punishment, a God of wrath. Of course, God is one God, and He is revealing one thing, speaking one thing, doing one thing, all the way through salvation history from start to finish. God Himself reveals in Scripture that under the Old Testament, He was revealing His saving justice precisely through holding His hand. Now, what is it for God to hold, or we might say, withhold His hand? He does not, then, bring down justice. He does not punish. He does not impute guilt under the Old Testament. He withholds His hand. The Greek word, if we were to look at this passage in Greek, that Greek word, paresis, actually means a passing over. God, rather than inflict the punishment due to man, fallen man, because of his sin, withholds his hand to reveal his saving justice. Therefore, God's saving justice is also always about his mercy. We can never speak of God's justice for very long without also having to speak about His mercy. God's justice and God's mercy are always one thing. We must remember that when man falls, when man rebels against God, he incurs the curse of death because death is the just punishment due to him for having turned away from, rejected God, the source of his life and the end of his life. He rejects life, and so he chooses death. But what does God do? Instead of annihilating man, because in a sense man is destroyed, annihilated, through that rebellion, God, rather than bringing that about, withholds his hand. God is patient. God waits. God is tolerant. This mercy is speaking about His justice in a very mysterious way. We might say then that God is already revealing, even under the Old Testament, His forgiveness of sins. But it is a quasi-forgiveness, because the forgiveness of sins is not fully revealed until the coming of the Son. What this forgiveness is, is that God allows His people to live, and even, in a sense, to prosper in faith while he is bringing man to repentance and to conversion. He is preparing mankind for the sending of his Son. So what God chooses to do is that he declines to attach guilt or to attach the consequences, the full consequences of that guilt, because the full consequence, of course, is the loss of eternal life. Yes, man has to endure death, but God, in a sense, withholds punishment. He does not impute 
guilt. He does not attribute the fault that is actually due to man. So there is this mysterious passing over of God's hand, which he reveals under the Old Testament. We remember what St. Paul says elsewhere. Actually, he says this in a speech that's recorded by St. Luke and Acts of the Apostles, how God overlooked the times of man's ignorance. We remember what St. Peter says in his letter, that God is patient with us. God is ever patient with us. He continues to be patient with us. He withholds, in a sense, his justice, while at the same time fulfilling his justice. Remember when God delivers Israel from the Egyptians, and he gives them instructions to sacrifice a lamb, to eat a lamb. This becomes the sign of the Passover lamb. And to mark their houses with the blood of the lamb, so that when the angel of death comes through, the angel of death will pass over God's people. He will pass over any house marked by the blood of the Lamb. Now this, along with all the other signs under the Old Covenant, is speaking about what God will do in the sending of His Son. Every saving intervention of God's on behalf of Israel under the Old Testament, every figure of the Old Testament, whether we are speaking of Noah and the ark and the flood, whether we are speaking of, of Abraham, of Moses, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, the prophets, the miracles of the prophets, all of these things are signs pointing to the new covenant. They are not yet the reality, however. They are real in that the people are real people in history, and the events are real events in history. But the Church Fathers always speak of them the way the Apostles even speak of them, which is that they are still, they are signs, and in a sense then they are shadows, not yet the reality. Shadows which point to and which speak about Christ and the New Covenant. Therefore, once the New Covenant is established, the, the signs of the Old Covenant pass away because the shadow no longer prevails when we are in the presence of the reality. They are simply the shadows, and now we possess that reality in Christ. So all of these things then are a preparation for the gospel. Man was fallen. Man was not just in the eyes of God. Man could not make himself just, justify himself by anything he could do, regardless of how intelligent he was, how wise, how kind, how talented. There was no way, even when man tried, that he could make things right between himself and God. So in a sense, God gave man a pass, but that pass was given to those who had faith in God. And from that faith, they chose to live in a way that was pleasing to God. As we shall discover in the next question, this is the whole point with regard to Abraham. 
So what happens is that man cannot justify himself. Man cannot save himself. God responds by saying, I alone can save man. I myself shall come to save my people, the people I love. This is the mystery of God sending the Son. Christ the Son is the only just one ever to live on the face of the earth. Christ is the only one who can fulfill the law. He embodies the law in his person. So salvation, what St. Paul is saying here, is that salvation comes through the just one, but it is through faith and not through works in the law. And what happens then is that Christ comes, he takes, the just one takes upon himself all the sin, the punishment, the wounds of man, all due to the fall. He takes upon himself these. He takes our fallen humanity, our sinful humanity, to himself. He, in a sense, empties himself, as scripture says, he empties himself, takes on our poverty. Now man, remember, is enslaved to sin because of the fall. Man is captive to death. And as God tells us, because we are held captive, we can't free ourselves. We can't pay our own ransom. We can't change the situation that we are in. God empties himself. He would be the rich one. He empties himself and hands over, in exchange, his riches. He takes our poverty to himself, and in exchange, he clothes us in his riches. He pays the price of our ransom. We are captive. We can't pay the debt which is infinite. It would require someone infinite in riches. It would require a person who is infinite in power to pay such a ransom. That's what God does. He pays the ransom with the price of his blood. Blood is life. Christ pays the ransom for all mankind with the price of his blood. He, in a sense, buys us then. He has a right to us, as scripture says. But we find ourselves under the kindest, the most benevolent, the most merciful master there could possibly be. He is the one who has, who has paid with his life the price of our ransom. In exchange, then, he takes, first of all, all sin and all the violence of sin upon himself. We cannot imagine, regardless of how long and hard we contemplate this mystery, the Paschal mystery of Christ, we are not able to fathom what Jesus Christ suffered in his mind, heart, body, and soul when he took all the punishment, the wrath of God, due to us, he took upon himself in the Paschal Mystery and suffered for it. He paid every last penny. He paid the full price. And in exchange, he clothed us in his righteousness. We are clothed in the garment of God's righteousness. And as scripture says, we are not only clothed, 
to touch, to wear, to put on the garment of Christ is to be transformed to the depths of our being because righteousness penetrates and transforms. We are given a new heart. We are given a new spirit. So it is something that changes us and we become, we are made a new creation. This is what happens in baptism. We are made new creatures in God. We are made new by becoming configured to Christ. This is why it is faith in Christ our Savior, our Redeemer, the one who paid our ransom. It is faith in Him and the power of the resurrection that is credited to us as righteousness. This will be the case with Abraham because God was already revealing the gospel to him. He did not live long enough to see it, but he did have faith in God, and he lived his life according to that faith. So we embrace this mystery through faith, and by embracing it, we are completely transformed. We are configured to Christ, so that when we are presented one day at the tribunal of God, we go before God the Father, clothed in Christ, transformed by Christ and the Holy Spirit, configured to Christ, so configured that when the Father looks upon us, He sees the Son. He sees the Son. And He sees us as righteous in His eyes. Now, it's not that we no longer are ourselves. To the contrary, the more we are configured to Jesus Christ, the more we come into possession of our own promised land, so to speak. God, in creating us, has a vision. Each person created is a unique, unrepeatable person with a particular purpose, all that person's own, with a particular way of glorifying God, a way that no one else has been given to glorify God. Our identity is attached to this. The more we are made new in Christ, the more we become established in that identity that God willed for us in the very beginning in creating us. It's beautiful. It is Christ who brings us into full possession of the promised land. A most beautiful mystery. So, the point then that St. Paul concludes with in this first question is that salvation and saving justice, our glory, the fulfillment of our life, however we want to talk about it, comes through the just one, comes through the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, through faith, not through works of the law. Now, this matter of works of the law is something we, we will deal with a number of times in this letter. St. Paul says that Jesus then will justify the circumcised by their faith, just as he will justify the uncircumcised by their faith. What matters is having faith in God, a living kind of faith that changes the way we live. He concludes by saying, are we saying that the law then has been made pointless by faith? He says, out of the question. The law is now placed on its true footing. Who can fulfill the law better than 
the divine legislator. God himself reveals the law. God himself is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus Christ, who is the law, he is the divine legislator. God himself, the divine legislator, comes to earth and in the person of Jesus Christ fulfills the law. This is why it is necessary that Jesus subject himself to the law in order to fulfill the law. But remember what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. He says, no, I do not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In truth, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass away until all is fulfilled. Now recall that we said under the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law with all of its prescriptions, the covenants, all the figures, the elements of the Old Testament were but shadows. Once the reality is present, the shadows disappear. It is as if in the fullness of the sun, the shadow disappears. We don't see the shadow, we see things as they truly are in the fullness of light, and Christ is that light. The signs and shadows, the figures, the types, which point to Christ, are no longer necessary because he has fulfilled all things, he has concluded, he has finished all things. But that's not to say that the truth, underwriting all that God has revealed under the Old Testament, those truths are eternal. They are forever. They do not go away. This is why the church has always said that the Old Testament retains its value. The Old Testament has an intrinsic value that is always important to us. Why? Because we go back to the Old Testament and we read it in light of Christ, and now we can understand the full meaning of those signs and figures and types. That meaning is still true. It still holds true. So that what God spoke about the covenant of circumcision, for example, still holds true. But that covenant no longer is the covenant in which we are established. We are established in a new and higher covenant. Christ fulfilled circumcision, as we will discuss shortly in the second question. So that Christ, who is the fulfillment of all law, Christ reveals the entire divine and human law in his person. Christ is the new law. Christ is the law of the gospel. If we want to know how to live in the present age, we need to know Christ, what he taught, what he said, and we need to follow that example. This is why we say that the law of the gospel fulfills, refines, surpasses, and leads the old law, everything under the old covenant, to its perfection. So the law of the gospel fulfills all of the prescriptions of the Mosaic law. In Jesus' teaching, far from, far from abolishing or devaluing the moral prescriptions of the old law, his teaching released their hidden potential and placed them, all of those truths, on their truest footing. Finally, we could understand not only the meaning, but we could understand the new demands that arise from those things under the law of Christ. 
This is why when we go back to the Ten Commandments, Israel had the Ten Commandments, but now in the person of Christ, we understand the Ten Commandments and what God is telling us to do in a way that the Israelites could not understand. We understand them more fully, and we understand them in a higher kind of way. And in addition to that, because we have received the Spirit of Christ, we have the capacity to live those commandments. A capacity, a grace, that had not been given to God's chosen people under the Old Covenant. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will cover Abraham's faith was credited to him as justice. And now, back to Dr. George. Paul now spends a fair amount of time talking about the example of Abraham because he knows that the question in the minds of his listeners would have been, well, what then can be said about Abraham? What do we conclude with regard to Abraham based on what St. Paul has just finished telling us? Abraham, as the Jews should have understood, Abraham had faith in God, and it was his faith which was credited to him as righteousness. Now, in a certain sense, they paid lip service to this, but down through Jewish tradition, Israel had a tendency to sort of flip upside down the example of Abraham so that in looking at Abraham as their father in faith, what they saw was a man who was a just man because of his, his profound loyalty to God, his perseverance under trial, that he succeeded in doing good even when things were not going well for him. They tended to see Abraham in light of his good works, while failing to understand that Abraham's life came out of, it had its origin in, his profound, his pure faith in God. Think about it. When we have a deep and abiding and living faith in God and hope and charity, out of that comes a way of life. People can do things mechanically. They can be legalistic about things. They can go through routines but their heart isn't necessarily in those things. Our heart is in something when our heart is formed through faith, hope, and charity. And from that, we strive, and in fact, there is a burning desire in us, a burning desire to do good, to serve God, to honor Him through our lives. But all those good works come through faith. Therefore, Paul is making the point that Abraham's faith, not his works, was credited to him as righteousness. He goes on to speak specifically then of circumcision and the law with regard to Abraham. And what does he tell us? Circumcision indeed was the covenant which God made with Abraham. 
But, as St. Paul so carefully points out, circumcision was given to him after God acknowledged his faith. Faith came first, the covenant of circumcision, the promise followed upon that. He says we need to keep this in its proper order. He says circumcision was given to him later as a sign and as a guarantee that the faith which Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. You see, God credited to Abraham his righteousness while he was still an uncircumcised man. So that came through faith. He said it was that which was reckoned to him as uprightness. Let's look for a few minutes at the whole, this whole matter of the covenant of circumcision. When God reveals that covenant, he says to Abraham, and my covenant shall be in your flesh. This is in revealing the covenant. He reveals the promise to him. What a mysterious phrase this is. My covenant shall be in your flesh. It says many things. On the one hand, it says that it shall be a memorable covenant. God himself says, in perpetuity, he makes this covenant. His people shall not forget. It shall be written, inscribed, cut into your flesh. But we also recall now the circumcision that God speaks about so frequently to Israel when Israel is rebellious and sinful, that he says to his prophets, circumcise your hearts. It's your heart that God wants to be circumcised. This is why St. Paul says it's not simply a matter of a visible, physical operation, because one can have this and not have faith or charity. He says what matters is that our hearts be circumcised. So God is speaking about this mystery of his covenant being cut deep into the heart of man, cut deep into the flesh of man, a covenant which is penetrating in its truth, in its reality. But there is one other matter here. When God says that his covenant shall be in our flesh, he is already speaking in a veiled way about the mystery of the resurrection. He is saying that this covenant I have with you concerns your flesh, concerns your flesh as well. Not only are we raised at the end in spirit, in soul, but our flesh too shares in God's new covenant in Christ. Now, what is it that God revealed about circumcision? In Christ, we go back to understand circumcision. We go back and we re-examine or we remind ourselves of what God revealed concerning the covenant. We could take all the details. We could spend a great deal of time on this, taking all the details surrounding circumcision and thinking of them anew in light of the person of Christ and the new and eternal covenant. So that God tells them all male children must be circumcised on the eighth day. This is what God commands. Now the eighth day, the number eight, is symbolic of the resurrection. The eighth day, as we know from divine revelation, is the new day. It is the new heavens and the new earth. So in this covenant, God is speaking about 
as we said, in a veiled way, the resurrection. He is speaking about circumcision of heart, about the new spirit that he shall place in man, that he shall make man new. And through circumcision, because after all, it was through this, that the Israelites were incorporated formally into the people of God, the people of the covenant. So, the male children then received circumcision on the eighth day, and at the same time, a new name was given them. Remember when God, in giving him the promise, he also says, you shall no longer be called Abram, you shall be called Abraham. God gives us a new name. The name, of course, is the sacred icon of the person. Our identity, our mission, our purpose, God's mystery written into us, is tied to our name. And so there is something appropriate under the Old Testament of the Israelite children receiving their name formally on the eighth day, just as we receive our name in baptism. Now, circumcision is completed in the person of Christ. Jesus, who is God, subjects himself, he submits himself to the law, he takes to himself the whole law and fulfills it in his person. It's part of the mystery. Remember that Jesus is clear in telling us that every letter of the law, every stroke of a letter of the law is to be fulfilled and is fulfilled in his person. Now, Jesus is circumcised, as scripture tells us, on the eighth day. The church traditionally has celebrated this on January 1st, which is the eighth day after the celebration of the birth of Jesus. He is circumcised, which is a sign. He fulfills this fact of being incorporated into the people of God. So Jesus then is formally incorporated into Abraham's descendants, and he is incorporated into the covenantal people. It's also a sign of being submissive to the law. Once a male is circumcised, he is placed under the law. He becomes officially, legally subject to the law. At the same time, it is a sign of his deputation to Israel's worship. The Israelite is deputed to worship. To be deputed is to be made a deputy, so to speak. A person who is given a particular authority and function in among that people, and they are allowed to represent others through that authority and function. So, as the church explains to us with regard to this mystery of Jesus' own circumcision, that it is a sign of his formal deputation to Israel's worship. He will fulfill this as high priest, he will fulfill it in his person. He is, he is the temple. It's very profound. It's very beautiful. Now, God also revealed that only circumcised members, people of his nation, could share in the Paschal Feast, the Passover lamb. Remember that God had instructed them, given them this memorial as a sign of their deliverance from Egypt, their liberation, and that it had to do with the sacrifice and eating of the paschal lamb and marking their houses with its blood. 
the Israelites, down through the centuries, came to see anyone who was uncircumcised among the pagan nations as a profane or unclean people. Those who came to live with them and among them were circumcised. They circumcised their, their slaves, their servants, all the members of their household. God had instructed them to do this. This was to be able to share, to be a part, to live among the covenantal people. Now, all of these things point to the fulfillment of the new covenant because the covenant of circumcision is fulfilled in the person of Christ and now in the new covenant that circumcision is the sacrament of baptism by which we are incorporated into, inserted into the people of God. We become a true member of the mystical body of Christ. St. Thomas Aquinas in considering the mystery surrounding the covenant of circumcision spoke of several reasons why God chose the organ of generation for the covenant of circumcision. In looking at this, let us keep in mind that every detail of salvation history that is divinely revealed has a wisdom written into it. We don't always understand it. Sometimes it takes years for us to begin to come into an understanding of the meaning of something. And as I said, we have to look at everything in the Old Covenant. If we want to have any hope of grasping it, we must do so only in the light of Jesus Christ and in the light of the mystery that he has revealed in the New Covenant. But think about this. The fact that God, in making this covenant with Abraham, he essentially said that all the males must be circumcised. That is, that they had to cut the foreskin off of the male organ. Why would this be? St. Thomas Aquinas says that in the first place, Abraham was to be blessed in his seed. Remember that God had promised him he would be the father of many nations. He is essentially the father of all nations because of his faith. As St. Paul is clear to say, it's not whether one is circumcised or uncircumcised. Because what mattered when when God made that covenant, when he revealed the promise to Abraham, it was because of his faith. It was his faith that was reckoned to him as uprightness. So God says he will be blessed. He will be the father of many nations. He will be blessed in his seed. And yet what a mysterious action that the covenant requires this cutting off at the place of the seed. God is essentially saying, what I am doing for you, the blessing, the promise, is pure gift. It is the work of my hand. And yet, in the mystery of this, I will take your own smallness, your incapacity, your lack of potency. He says, I will work through you and bless you and the whole world. But it is pure gift. It is my work. In a sense, he is reminding mankind that while God blesses us, it is the work of God's hand. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be continuing the topic, Abraham's faith was credited to him as justice. And now, back to Dr. George.
Now, as I said, circumcision is a prefigurement of baptism. What is baptism? It is the rite that takes away original sin. An original sin is passed on through generation. Generation after generation. In a sense, we could say through the organ of generation by which God brings human beings into creation, into the created order. What a profound mystery this is. We would not understand it apart from understanding what it is that we are given in the sacrament of baptism. So, the rite which takes away original sin. And finally, what is the effect of the sacrament? It is essentially a cutting away of sin, a cutting away of the fleshly part of man. Through that sacrament, concupiscence is restrained. Remember that after the fall, there was disorder in all of creation and within man himself. Things were no longer properly ordered. The flesh was set in rebellion against the spirit. And to this day, man suffers from concupiscence, the consequence of original sin. And in spite of baptism, this battle remains in us, this battle between flesh and spirit. The flesh is sacred. The body is sacred. The flesh is good. But we live, in a sense, in a fallen condition, and we are weak. And so the flesh always wants to, to have its way. The flesh does not want to subordinate itself to the spirit as it should. So the covenant of circumcision is already pointing to the mystery of what God will fulfill for us in the sacrament of baptism. This cutting away of the fleshly part of man and setting things in their right order. So Abraham then, because St. Paul says, all of this is given to him while he is still uncircumcised. The mystery that God calls him out of a strange land, a distant land, a faraway land. He calls him, Abraham responds in faith. This is part of the mystery of Abraham, that when God reveals something, he doesn't doubt, he doesn't question, he doesn't try to figure it out. He simply responds. He is all yes and yes and yes. He has in him that fiat, the fullness of which we read about in Scripture when Mary responds to God's word with that full and unconditional fiat. Now the law, the law is, as St. Paul points out more clearly in his letter to the Galatians, but he does refer to it here, the law, we are not justified by the law, we cannot be because the law had not been explicitly revealed at the time of Abraham. Yes, the natural law is written on the heart of man. And yes, Abraham heeded that law. He was a good man. He knew right from wrong and he lived accordingly. Abraham, Abraham worshiped God. He adored God. Abraham honored his parents and authority. Abraham loved his neighbor. He did not violate his neighbor. In a sense, he fulfilled the Ten Commandments because they are written on the heart of man. It is because man did not heed them or hear them in his heart that God explicitly revealed the Ten Commandments and made them clear. So Abraham lived 430 years before the revelation of the law. And St. Paul says, so how can the law be then 
our saving justice. He says, because Abraham is justified and the law had not been revealed yet for another 430 years. So he says, that justification comes through faith and not fulfilling the law. But again, we must remember that it is because of his faith, it is his faith that changes how he lives and how he responds to God. That's why he concludes by making absolutely clear that Abraham is our father in faith and he is the father of all nations. He is the father of all peoples. Why? Because God calls all peoples to faith. We go back to the whole principle, the whole concept of God creating man out of love and for love at the beginning of time. In creating man, he willed that man live in friendship and communion with him forever in this, in what we might call a people of God. So the concept of God's church is already present in a veiled way, in a hidden way, in a prefigured way at the very beginning of time. What is church? If we look into the matter, or the etymology of the word, church is a convocation of all God's people. It's the assembly of all God's people. But the word church is even connected with the idea of to call out of. God calls man out of where he is in a distant land, certainly Adam and Eve after, after the fall, but he calls them out. He calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He calls him out so that he can form a people all his own. Abraham doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know the fulfillment of the promise. And every step of the way, he responds with a total yes. And he lives his life as a yes, as if he was already embracing that, even though he really did not in his lifetime see the fulfillment of the promise. This is the amazing thing about Abraham. This is why he is the father of all who believe. Because what Abraham went through, in a sense we can say we all must go through, that God has called us out of a distant place, made us a people his own. He has established us in a covenant with him. And he has made a promise to us, and he will fulfill that promise. And yes, he tests us in that, so that there are moments in our life where we think that that the very trial we are in the midst of is going to undermine or undo the whole promise. This is the whole mystery of, of God's asking Abraham to sacrifice his son, asking him to sacrifice not only what is most beloved to him, but to sacrifice the very means that Abraham sees as being the fulfillment of the promise. Because God had told him, it shall be through your son Isaac that the promise is fulfilled. First of all, it's miraculous that when God gives him the promise that Abraham is nearly 100 years old and Sarah passed childbearing age. She is 90. Scripture tells us this. He has no idea how it's going to be fulfilled, but he believes. He has faith. And faith always draws miracles, great works out of God. Finally, he and Sarah are given the son Isaac. And then God asks him to sacrifice, to hand over to him his son. Abraham obeys. Now, we might be surprised at this, but remember, 
at precisely the point when we think God is asking something bad of us. That's our way of seeing it. God not only cannot ask something of us which is bad or evil or contrary to his will, he can't do anything which will stand in the way of his own will or undermine it. It's not possible for God. He knew what he would do. He knew he wasn't going to permit this. But he was testing Abraham. It becomes symbolic of a kind of test that we all have in life at some point in time, and in many different small ways, perhaps, but sometimes in a very great way in our lifetime. And we tend to draw back before that. Abraham did not. As scripture says that he believed that, even if he did this, that God would somehow, that he had the power to even raise the dead. Isn't this amazing that in his faith, under the Old Testament, centuries and centuries, millennia really, before the revelation of the resurrection and the person of Christ, his faith was so pure, so great, that he believed in the concept, the very notion of the resurrection, that God is so great and so good, that he would make good in his promise, and that if he wanted to raise his dead son from the dead, that certainly he could do so, and he would, if that's what he had to do to fulfill his promise. Do we see that God is already revealing the gospel, in a sense, in the life of Abraham? Abraham is a figure of Christ, we can say in a certain sense. All the great figures of the Old Testament are. They're human beings, and they're not perfect. But in some way or form, each of them reveals or speaks in some way about the person of Christ. So it is the faith of Abraham then. Abraham is the model of faith. He is the example we must follow. And in this way, he is our father. As the church explains in the catechism, since God could create everything out of nothing, that's really the marvel. The fact that not that God can solve our worst problems or bring us through trials. The very fact that we have been created out of nothing in the first place is, is incredible. It's amazing. This same God who creates out of nothing certainly can give life, new life, to a spirit by transforming the human heart, by creating a new heart in man, which he does, Certainly he can do this. The same God who creates out of nothing not only can give spiritual life, he can certainly give bodily life by raising someone from the dead, by raising them up, the mystery of the resurrection. This same God can, can give a light so powerful, so penetrating, a light that shines forth in the darkness, that he can give the light of faith to people in parts of the world, people with darkened hearts, to people who do not yet know him. God's light is power. It's penetrating. His life is, is eternal. It's life-giving. This is what Abraham, this is what Abraham believed in. This is what he set his heart on. And that is why, as scripture says, he died without ever, in a sense, seeing. He did not see the promise fulfilled. He did not know. It was a mystery. As he drew his last breaths on earth, he knew that he had not seen God's word fulfilled. 
And yet, he did not waver because he had faith. This is the kind of faith that we must have if we are to be the children of Abraham. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and additional materials can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the New Testament letters. Dr. George will be covering Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6, which include the following two topics. The first Adam, the last Adam, and second, baptism, death to sin and life in Christ. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church.